HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Enjoy food the way Mother Nature intended. Alaska Seafood. Wild, natural, and sustainable. For more information, visit www.wildalaskaseafood.com. Hey, thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network. This is Katie, HRN Executive Director, and I'm so excited to share with you our coverage from the Charleston Wine and Food Festival. We are here live today at Charleston Wine and Food. Join us as we talk all things food. Come to Charleston, eat some seafood. Eat all of the seafood. Chicken fried chicken with chorizo steak and salsa verde mashed potatoes. So quintessentially like Southern fare at its finest. And have important conversations. We're also talking about professional women in restaurants and how underrepresented they are. People of color in restaurants and how they're not talked about. We get real with Food Network's Manit Chohan. Balance is BS. <laughs> uh, I, I, I was, yeah, I was told that uh, I wasn't going to be bleeped out. And find out about raising sugarcane with Chef Sean Brock. It's like being Indiana Jones or something. You never know what you're going to find. You'll come away inspired by the power of food and the food scene in Charleston. Here's Dr. Jessica B. Harris. Food is constantly in flux. Food is always moving. Food is the only real lingua franca that we have that allows us to connect with other folks. So tune in to Heritage Radio Network on tour at heritageradionetwork.org or wherever you get your podcasts. You can't go wrong. You're listening to a special episode of In the Drink on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I am your host, Joe Campanelli, and I am so excited to be back after a long hiatus. Um, this is a special episode because I'm still easing in to uh, the great weekly routine that was In the Drink, um, but I heard that a great winemaker was in town Um, I'm starting to feel a little bit more comfortable with the schedule at Fausto. If you guys haven't been, please come and visit me there. And uh, I wanted to rush back into the station here at Roberta's in Bushwick and get uh, this winemaker on as my guest. Um, In the studio today, we have Dan Petrosky, who is the co-owner and winemaker at Masakin and the winemaker at Larkmead 
in uh, both in California. And I'm so excited to have him here. You can find the Masakin Anya wine over at, uh, at Fausto. It was on our opening list. It's on the list right now. Embarrassingly, it wasn't there when he came to visit a few weeks ago. But uh, um, you can come and drink it. I absolutely love that wine. Uh, and those are the wines that uh, I, I got introduced to uh, uh, Dan through. Uh, even though Larkmead, I think, is uh, the really historic, uh, great Napa Valley producer focusing on Cabernet. Um, uh, but I'm so excited to have Dan in the studio today. Welcome to In the Drink. Thanks, Joe. I'm excited to be here. Uh, does that happen to you where, uh, obviously Lark Mead at this point is, you know, more famous and historic. Do, do people in, uh, maybe in New York know you better through Masakin? I, I do think so. Um, when I started Masakin in 2009, I was still working my way up the ladder at Lark Mead. So I was, uh, went from a cellar master per se to assistant winemaker to associate to taking over winemaking responsibility responsibilities in 2012. So I was out, you know, coming home. I'm a New York, Brooklyn native. I was coming home and introducing my wines to the fr- my friends, basically, a lot of the, lot of the sommelier community and a lot of the restaurants I love to eat and drink at when I was living here in New York City for a little over 30 years. So I do think that there, you know, it preceded um, my reputation a little bit at Larkmead. But uh, Larkmead is my, it's my, it's my core, it's my bones, it's something I've been doing for 12 years now, uh, something I've been really excited about, um, something I'm excited about about the future um, of winemaking in California, especially the future of Cabernet in California. Um, I do think, and you know, it's a funny story, when we, we've been expanding the winery at Larkmead uh, twice in 10 years, and I told the owner, Cam Baker, He's like, how you doing? You know, we had construction right in the middle of 2012 harvest. And he's like, how you doing? I said, well, I'm doing great, but um, I'm already thinking about the next winery we need to build because <laughs> we're not going to make the best wines here at Larkmead until about 2020. And he like, he looked at me like I had three heads and, and ran away. And, uh, and I love him for that because uh, he's given me all the opportunity in the world to, 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 to do what I've been doing today. Yeah, I mean, and that's something that you hear a lot from great winemakers, that, that wine is uh, something that just requires a lot of time. And winemakers think on a different time schedule than, uh, than most people do. Um, so what do you see as, uh, what have been the changes at Larkme through the, the time that you've been there, and where do you want to take that in the future? Sure. Um, the best part of being a Cabernet winemaker, and I can say this tr- all honesty, is when you're, when you're in a given calendar year like 2018, we are releasing the 2015 wines, we are about to bottle the 2016 wines. We are elevaging the 2017 wines. And then we're going to harvest the 2018 wines. So you see four vintages at once. Um, that is incredible. And so take that over a 10-year period. Now I'm, I'm getting to see 40, you know, 40 movements of wine over a 10-year period or more at Larkmead. And that really informs everything I do. Mm-hmm. Um, and the one thing I've been, I've been really focusing on is, is restraint is an, an, an often overused word, but I'm really trying to figure out what the future is of this vineyard by understanding the vineyard. Like, it wasn't until 2000 and, uh, 2006, 2007 when we hired a viticulturist to come in and, and uh, named Kelly Marr, who, who has great respect in the valley, to kind of understand the site. And we're learning more and more and more about the vineyard and what its potential is. So we have, uh, we have a lot of young vines that we have to grow up with, um, but we know how they're acting and reacting to the climactic changes. And, um, and my goal is always to just take the, take the volume down. Um, you know, just, 
you know, Lark Mead did big for many years. Uh, we did, and we did, we did it really well. I mean, we're in a very hot site in Northern Napa Valley and gives us the opportunity to make really powerful wines. But I want to kind of take it down and find the nuances and complexities um, due to the diversity of the soil. So, you know, it's, it's removing a little bit of the extra oak that we had in the past. It's removing a little bit of the extra alcohol, which created a little bit of extra baby fat um, and getting down to a transparency. Um, and that's really, you know, for me, I think that's what the future is. And, and we see it across the board in the Napa Valley and Sonoma County. I think a lot of the producers I grew up with in the, in the mid aughts who were riding the wave of high impact wines and big flavor are really starting to think a little differently about, you know, what truly inspires them as winemakers. And I know one of the things that you're doing while you're here in New York is having a discussion, uh, tomorrow about the future of Cabernet. Um, I, I would love to know what is what inspired this uh, this discussion, um, and uh, what are some of your own uh, personal thoughts. And is it possible for us to? I know I won't be able to attend. Is it possible for? Is it will it be broadcast in any way or recorded? Can we can we view this? Um, that's a really great question, and I couple, we'll start with the the the, the latter with the recording of it. We've been doing this at Larkmead for a little over a year now. We've had a, about four sessions of the future of Cabernet. What we found out in the beginning is when we when we recorded and transcribed what people were saying, during the recording process, I felt that people were holding back. Mm-hmm. They weren't willing to kind of really truly state what they thought or what they felt. Um, so we're and, not we're not recording this, by the way. Just today? Yeah, today. <laughs> this is just you and me. No, it's just pi- the pizza, let loose. The pizza is great, you know, <laughs> and the pre noon cocktail is amazing. Um, <laughs> but so we're not recording it tomorrow, unfortunately, because I I, I've, I find it that people are. Um, People are, are much more open to speak their speak freely when they're amongst their peers and they're, you know, they they have the opportunity. But this is a this is an event I've started because I'm I, you know I'm, I'm you know not an optimistic person. I'm a New Yorker, so mm-hmm. uh, I'm not I'm not full of uh, I'm not full of uh, of unicorns and rainbows. I'm, I'm a realist in, in a sense, and and you know we have a we have challenges ahead of us, and not it's not only Cabernet. I mean it's agriculture. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so if you go, if you take it to that level, you can see already my pessimism about climate change, about, you know, in the last five years, we've had an earthquake, the largest earthquake in that area in, 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 in recorded history in Napa Valley. We had drought conditions. We then went into one of the greatest fires or largest fires in, uh, in 2017, which is just eclipsed by a fire in the South. I mean, the climactic changes that are happening right now, um, scares me. And we're actually going to have the next session. Uh, in August is going to be about climate change um, and how Cabernet fits into all of this. Because I do think Cabernet being the king of all grapes has been the most adaptable, um, but it's been the most adaptable by force. Um, and the force of the market demands and the force of, uh, of, of, of luxury and the force of pricing models. Um, and honestly, New York City, my hometown, doesn't embrace Napa Valley Cabernet the way I would love it to embrace, as a, as a, me being a winemaker. But we have some problems. We, you know, we have style problems. We have price problems. Um, we have, you know, we look at the, how the restaurant scene is changing. There weren't restaurants like Fausto in, uh, in Brooklyn, where you can go and get a great meal and a great glass of wine for a reasonable price when I was growing up. It was, it was a lot different style of, of, uh, of restaurant and food scene. And now as we've been expanding, the, you know, the, the, the New York City has been expanding, it's more of the casual. And our prices are not casual. Our mm-hmm. prices are, you know, and I'm, I'm being honest about this, our prices are catering to a select audience, a select demographic that comes and uses wine country in Napa Valley as travel and tourism. 
And then there's nothing wrong with that. There, that's, we, we, want, we want escapism in life, mm-hmm. and, and Cabernet is part of that. So you have the, uh, the economic reality and the economic future, which for a while seemed like people were doing pretty well. Um, who knows? It seems pretty uncertain right now, especially with some of these tariffs coming from China. And I know that was a pretty big export market for, uh, for Napa Valley. Um, the climactic changes, um, both with global warming and, and fires, um, and then uh, the stylistic change that people are, are drinking differently than yeah. in the past. And I think that is maybe the most interesting thing for, for me personally, um, is this, uh, the, the, the style of wines that people, that wine enthusiasts, I imagine a lot of people who listen to this show like to drink, isn't the very ripe, very oaky uh, wine that was emblematic of Napa Valley Cabernet in the past, but uh, maybe something that is uh, more scaled back on those things. Um, and do you see it? Do you see that that's how things are going? I know that at, at Larkmead, you've been in a process of picking a little bit earlier, scaling back the the char on the oak, scaling back the percentage of new oak. Um, is that has that been? driven by your own personal taste, by market demand, a command of, uh, a combination of both? It's definitely um, my own personal taste, and, and, I, and I'm, not, I'm not unique in that. I think we all, as in relationships in life, with whether it be with, uh, with a partner or with uh, consumption of beverage or hobbies, we, we tend to evolve. We tend to get a little look for more sophistication. The more we, the more we read, the more we appreciate, the more we appreciate and educated, the more we're going to spend on pursuing those habits. Mm-hmm. And, and as you do that, and especially in the wine world, as you know, Joe, you, you, it's never ending. And it's, it's a constant progression towards finding that wine that moves you. And, and a lot of wines in this world move me and, um, and Larkmead moves me and it, but it, I want to move it to a point where I have that fall off the chair, 1970 Aubryon moment where I'm like, wow, I'll never make a wine like that. But then I, after the night is over and I wake up the next morning, I say, well, how do I achieve that? And what do I need to do? What was in that wine that attracted me to it? Um, and those are the, the, those are the kind of the influences, the exter- externalities that influence me and inspire me to try to make a better wine, a wine that moves me to, to literally falling off the chair. And, and I do think that um, the, the community is, uh, as you said, the, we're all, um, you know, I've been doing this for 12 years. I mean, we're all evolving. If I like the same... If I liked the same car, if I, I drove the same car for 12 years, it would, you would think I'd be weird. Um, so why, is, you know, why wouldn't I want to change and evolve the wines? And what I always say is you've know, you got to do the changes slowly. Mm-hmm. Um, you got to take people along for the ride. And um, I'm not done yet. So. I, I think a lot of people idolize the wines of Napa Valley in the 1970s, like the late 60s, the 70s, maybe even into the early 80s. Um, and we had a really interesting conversation when you came into Fausto. Uh, and I, I think that uh, maybe some sommeliers look back at that time and say, people should make wine more like it was made during that time. Um, but uh, it seems to me, and correct me if I'm wrong, that, that you think that there, there's a future of less ripeness, but it doesn't, like there are certain things that we idolize about that time that maybe necessarily aren't the best winemaking practices. Oh, that is that is 100% accurate. Um, I've been very fortunate in the last 10 years to be exposed to an incredible amount of old Napa. Um, old Napa that was, uh, that brought, to, that, that really never really uh, uh, resurrected itself until, you know, 
uh, Scott Brenner and Kelly White uh, resurrected the, the wine list at Press in, uh, in, in downtown St. Helena, and they brought Old Napa to the current day winemakers, and, and we were all flabbergasted. And I think the, the sommelier community, as we got excited about it, and, and, then, and then it spread, and the idea of it spread, there is this nostalgia. I mean, we all have romanticism and nostalgia for, for, for the past, and, uh, and, and a lot of those wines, you know, as you start to research them, as you start to read about them, you start to look... You don't even have to go as far as the, as the Andre Chelichev labels on the back of the Inglenook Pinot Noirs from the 40s and 50s, mm-hmm. where he lists every movement of the wine, every addition of sulfur, mm-hmm. um, the racking regime. You know, you can, you can ask yourself, how much were those wines priced in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, and how were they being transported across the country? Right now, if I take a pallet of wine, I move it from California to New York, it goes in a refrigerated truck. In the 50s, there wasn't refrigerated vehicles moving pallets of wine across the country, so you needed to be shelf-stable. You also have to remember who these wines were being made by. They were being made by immigrants who were looking for table-friendly wines and at the price points of table-friendly wines, and they needed to be stable. They needed to be opened and consumed over the course of a week, potentially. So there's a lot of things that we romanticize about this. I'm not trying to say that the wines were were manipulated or, 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 or done in a way that's not... It's not what we think it is, but at the same time, yeah, there were some great wines being made, and you know they were they were still just getting their feet under them and trying to make wines for what they wanted to drink. Um, you can't fault the modern winemaking style because that was, you know, just an evolution. I mean, there was a, there was new vines being planted in the '90s due to the phylloxera epidemic in the '80s. New vines with better understanding of vit- viticulture, better understanding of vineyard sites better understanding of, uh, of rootstock and how it, in, uh, it, it informs the vine's potential and the soils that they're planted and grape varieties and, and especially Cabernet Sauvignon. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And so you're saying that they added a lot of sulfur. Is that, is that the law? There was stability. There was, uh, there was a lot of sulfur. There was uh, racking for cleanliness. Uh, there was uh, like yeah. a lot of filtration. A lot of filtration during, throughout the process. Filtering from post-primary to you know, post-primary, post-secondary. Mm-hmm. Filtering between, between rackings. Um, There's a lot of activity. So why are these wines so long-lived? Why do, why do they still give us so much pleasure today if they seem kind of like super manipulated? I wouldn't say there was they, they were they were moved in a way that you can say that that is intervention mm-hmm. or manipulation, um, but the reality of it is that they're you know they're they're built for shelf stability. I mean, Velveeta cheese is probably going to be pretty stable in twenty forty, right? Because <laughs> um, it's built it's built for stability, and and that's you ha- they were they were understanding that you know it didn't take a week to get across country in a refrigerated truck. It took a month on a train mm-hmm. and, uh, and then how that happens. And it could be in the middle of the summer and it could be in the South. And so if, if it gets to the other side and it's spoiled, that's a problem. Right. And I, I have a feeling that you're somewhat of a history buff as well. <laughs> yeah. What, what do you know about pre uh, prohibition winemaking in California? Because you hear about uh, California wines late 19th century, before World War One, before Prohibition, before the Great Earthquake in San Francisco, before that first recession, before the Depression, before some other vineyard plague that happened. I can't remember a great oidium outbreak. Um, there, there's just like a bunch of bad shit that happened in California, uh, you know, in the first 40 years of, of the 20th century. So like late 19th century, these wines were actually somewhat prized in, in Europe. Um, was there, was there good winemaking as we think of it today where people understood their, their plots and tried to showcase terroir and 
made elegant wines. Have you ever had an opportunity to taste a 19th century California wine? I've, I've never even seen one around. No, I have not had the, um, the pleasure to taste something from the 19th century. I am not a historian um, in so much, and I can tell you all the answers to your questions about um, what the wines were like and what, the, what they were being made. It was a very small community in you know mm-hmm. pre-prohibition of making a wine they yes they'll tell you that there was uh there was uh, hundreds of wineries uh pre-prohibition and then post-prohibition it was only about 30 um and yes that's true but they were they were all immigrant immigrant run um so you know Larkmead was founded and and uh was built in 1884 um it, we got most of our history comes from you know the California state fairs and the record books of what wine we made and what medals they won you know gold silver and bronze um, we with these immigrants, they used a lot of the regionality names that we see in Europe about you know things like Burgundy and 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 uh, and Hock and and Moselle and so then you know Sauternes like these were the names of the wines because they were made because those are the wines of the world that informed them. California didn't have a, a history, didn't have a, a, a recognition of quality or respect, so they just you know used what informed them. Um, the winemaking. Winemaking practices back then were, you know, look, look UC Davis as uh, the, the number one viticultural school in the, in the world still made wine in five gallon buckets up until um, the, in, up until the recent era in the last five to 10 years when they built their on campus winery, five gallon buckets. So, you know, it, it, like winemaking, wine, wine, the beauty of wine is, I think that we and the reason why I think the natural wine movement is so important is that uh, wine is resilient Wine grapes will make wine. I mean, it is resilient. It could withstand a lot um, of the process of the actual fermentary process, the heat process. And, and I do think that we can all make really good wines with very substandard um, resources. And, you know, we're, we're pretty sophisticated today. And it's not just us. I always joke around all the, all, and it, it, you know, people think that, you, that we manipulate and we do things in California. I said, I always tell everyone who, who, who knocks California or Napa Cinema Wines, look at the names and all the equipment. They're all made by the French, German, and Italians. We didn't make any of them. <laughs> like, we don't know how to make those, that mm-hmm. equipment, that, you know, whether it be sorters or, uh, or, 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 or uh, optical sorters or reverse osmosis machines or, you know, filtration machines. Like, Americans don't make any of that. All that was created by... Uh, by by our by the people that that inspire us, right? And if you are an, a, a not conscientious producer in California, and you you're someone who wants to who doesn't care as much about you know the natural wine movement uh, in the vineyard, the amount of input that you have to add to the vineyard is still not that high compared to other places in the world that might be uh, wetter, more humid. Um, and so it's yeah. There's also that. There's also that aspect of it. Oh, California is a perfect place to to be organic, uh, to be natural. Um, it's it's dry. It's dry. It's dry during the entire peak of the growing season. Um, there's so much opportunity for us to uh, as a as a region to kind of own that as a, a as as a philosophy and a future. And um, I, I wish we had more commitment to it. Um, and it has to come from the higher levels. It has to come from, you know, from the, the, the bigger bulk brands that, uh, that dominate the, the consumption of wine in America. And I'll be honest about that. Um, but you see is on the smaller, more boutique levels, like the Larkmead levels and some of the, you know, the names that are etched in the pantheon of uh, a great California Cabernet, Napa Valley Cabernet. These are all, you know, organic farmers and some even going to biodynamic. Yeah. But it's not part, it's not, you don't sell it as an organic or biodynamic wine. You sell it as great wine. I mean, 
that's the secondary. He also said something that uh, I, I found surprising: the importance of the natural wine movement um, as it as it uh, uh, relates to the resilience of the vine. Like the fact the fact that uh, vines are resilient is like the first thing that you learn when you start learning about uh, about wine. That you know, vines can grow in a place with no topsoil. Um, they can grow uh, in a lot of different extremes. Uh, and there's a there's a pretty large swath between the mo- the coolest places and the warmest places that that uh, that vines can grow, um, and that made me think that wow, vines can grow even if you're adding some pretty strong, you know, pesticides or herbicides. Um, but then on the flip side, even if you don't do those things, you can still grow. You know, you can still grow vines and. Um, there's some disease vines that make really lovely, really lovely wines. So that resilience of wine can, uh, of the, of the vine grape can go on, on both sides. Um, and I found that to be something that was interesting. No, I, they're growing up in Brooklyn and looking at the trees in the backyard. And, and I remember when I was, when I was about, uh, 12 or 13 years old, someone said, that's not a tree. That's a, that's a weed. And it grew as high and as tall as the trees around it. And they, because they had been living there for, mm-hmm. in that house for, for as long as they could remember. And, and you know, the, the, I think plant life and, um, you know, and I'm not an expert in any of it, uh, um, there is a resilience to it, uh, to this world. And, and, it, and unfortunately, like, look, I mean, consider what we put in our bodies, you know, drinking, drinking a, a very high syrupy, uh, sweet and bitter Campari, um, is might be the equivalent of using Roundup in, in, in essence, uh, in, in reality, right? Um, so that's something that we have to you know, consider. We are, we are resilient beings, and uh, I think this, the planet around us is resilient. But, but, you know, I worry that we're pushing it a little too far. I agree. Um, I just want to finish up uh, about this segment. Uh, we're going to take a quick break and talk about Masakin. But uh, the, the challenges of the future of Cabernet and the potential of the future of Cabernet. I know these are ma- massive uh, topics. I'm sure you're going to dive into them tomorrow, but none of us will be there. Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, oh, maybe a few of our oh. listeners. But what, what do you find to be the, the, the biggest challenges? Are they the economic, uh, environmental, the, the taste of, of, uh, 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 of the consumers? Is there something that I'm not thinking about into one, one of those three? Um, and then where do you think, where do you think is the biggest potential? You hit, you hit the nail on the head. I think Part of this this whole concept is is understanding what the what the future demand is going to be, um, and understanding where the markets are moving, and but part of it is also that I, I do believe the Cabernet has the most resilience of all grape varieties, and it can overcome climate change. It can overcome uh, um, a lot of the poor res- natural resources of, of soil, as you described earlier, Joe, uh, of where a vine can grow. I do think the Cabernet is that's why it is the king um, mm-hmm. in my eyes. And uh, but we can't we can't always put a, a regal cape on it. You know, we can't always have a, a, a very big, heavy, lush, luxurious uh, coating on it. And I'm not talking about style here. I'm talking about price as well. I mean, we, we have to be able to allow Cabernet to reach a wider audience at a price point that is high quality, that is grown in effectively in, in, in organic environments and uh, or even non-organic sustainable environments and make it make it a more democratized king of all grapes in my eyes. I agree. All right. On that note, we're going to take a really quick break. We'll be back more with Dan Petrosky of Larkmead and Masakin right after this. 
Think about what it takes to swim a coastline longer than the entire eastern seaboard and leap tall waterfalls in a single bound. What does it take to survive 200 feet deep in icy salt water? What would you be made of? Tight muscle mass, long chain omega-3s, and incredible micronutrients. It matters where your food comes from. Experience the flavor of the fittest in every bite and enjoy food the way Mother Nature intended. Alaska seafood. Wild, natural, and sustainable. Ask for Alaska on the menu, grocery store, or smart device. For more information, visit www.wildalaskaseafood.com. All right, we are back. Uh, I neglected in the first segment to congratulate you on being the San Francisco Chronicle Winemaker of the Year, Brooklyn Boy Made Good. Congratulations. Thank you, you, Joe. Uh, very happy for you, very excited. Um, I really want to, uh, in the, uh, the second segment... Focus on Masakin. Uh This is the wine that uh, that introduced me to to your work. Um, as I said, it was part of the our, our opening list, and you can find it at, at Fausto uh, right now. Um, you are uh, making uh, fresh, crisp, beautiful, lively wines um, using some grapes that are uh, Italian in origin um, in uh, in California. Tell us about how Masakin came to be. Sure. It, it, it wasn't really meant to be a winery um, in, in actuality. Um, I, so I have a history uh, in corporate uh, world here in New York City for 10 years, working in Time, Inc., uh, working for Sports Illustrated in Time. And over the course of that, uh, that period, I worked in publishing, so I had a bit of a, uh, worked on the editorial side, I had a bit of a creative side to me. Um, then I also worked in the financial and the, uh, the consumer marketing and sales aspect of it. Um, during that period, I went to business school and, and, um, and, uh, and met some wonderful people and, uh, and who today, uh, my business partner in Masakan. Um, but so when I was working at Larkmead for, you know, going on three, four years, I was I was a small team, so I was exposed to a lot of aspects of the business, and I, I needed to do I needed to run the exercise myself through a business plan to see if the wine industry made sense, and so that was just truly the way Masakon started. It was like, all right, if I have this business plan um, to see if it makes sense, and 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 I'll be honest with you, it doesn't make sense. <laughs> the wine industry is a tough one. Um, There's the old adage that the best way to make a small fortune in the wine industry is to start with a really large one. Exactly, <laughs> um, but. But, but it was funny, so I, I, I needed a second opinion, and I sent my plan to, uh, to, uh, to my friend, uh, and who is now my business partner, my longtime friend from business school, who helped set me up on my, my career path in wine by making the introductions in Sicily, where I worked for a year. Um, and he looked at it and said, let's make wine. And I was just 
kind of like, okay. Um, and, you know, being an assistant winemaker at the time and, and, and getting the support of my, my boss and, uh, and mentor at the time and the owner of Larkmead to, to kind of uh, explore and, and, and see the world and hopefully to inform me to be a better winemaker uh, at home at Larkmead. Um, what it was just the, the generosity of it was incredible. And, um, and even though the, 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 the math didn't really pencil out. Right. Well, how did you know? So you knew you wanted to do something that wasn't Cabernet. You don't want to uh, compete with your bread and butter there, mm-hmm. right? Um, but uh, And you had this uh, Sicilian experience, you told me, when you came into Fausto. I didn't realize this, that uh, you know you, you know the, the Bonatti family uh, quite well. And um, I know that you were working at Valle della Cate. Making, they make some like really beautiful frappato. Mm-hmm. Um uh, everyone thinks of Oki Pinti, and as as do I, is the 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 queen. The, uh, but uh, Valle Delicati makes some very pretty wines as well. Um, but how did you how did you even come across these Italian grapes in California? Yeah. Who, who knew? No, it was it was insane. Um, you know, the, the the first thing that completely informed me about Masakan was you know when I lived in 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 Italy, it the. Climate was very Mediterranean, very hot, very dry, and um, and we were surrounded by a lot of uh, a, a lot of inputs of, 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 of great, beautiful blossoms and salinity of the sea, and, um, and and just just floral notes and 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 freshness notes and citrus notes, and and those are the things that really informed our eating and drinking habits, um, being in that part of the world. And I noticed when I was in California that we weren't really informed with our eating and drinking based on our externality of weather. And it was odd to me. And I think that's a cultural bridge that we have to cross as American consumers um, that we're not there yet. It takes generations and time to do that. Um, so I was I was at a loss. I would I literally every time I went home and I came back to, to from SFO, I would stop at a small Italian wine shop called Biondivino in San Francisco, buy a case of wine, bring it to Napa. It was always fresh, interesting wines. It was the wines of the Benantes. It was the wines of Valle Delicate. And I would bring them up to Napa Valley and taste them and enjoy them because the climate was perfect. So that was really what informed Masakan. Um, the, the, how I ended up with uh, with working with things like Tokai Filano, Ribola Giallo, Greco, etc., was that every year we have a we have to produce a, a report on how much tonnage of grapes that we harvest and make wine out of. And uh, and in February, everyone anxiously awaits for this. It's in California, it's an agricultural report. And, uh, and you just start to see all the diversity of what's in, in the state. And you just get amazed by it. And like, like where, the, how the F, where the F is this? Like, where is this planted? Then you do a Google search. And then you find out that, you know, that there's Ribola Jala in, in, in Oak Knoll. And it's made by, you know, this planted by this gentleman named George Vare. And C. Mathiasen is helping him. And he, George, was selling it to, 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 to Food & Wine when Bobby Stuckey was, uh, excuse me, the French Laundry when Bobby Stuckey was there. And this whole, this whole ball unravels and you're like wow and then you call up Steve Matthias and he's like yeah George is going to sell some of his fruit this year and and then you call up you know you tell your friends that you're looking for awkward weird Italian grape varieties and you know you get a guy like Tegan Pasolacqua who like immediately responds and is like hey you got to talk to the Nicolini family out in Child's Valley and so it's just a community of people who are who have their boots on the ground and who are out there helping each other and 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 if you have a crazy wacky idea you Better not keep it to yourself in California because if you do have a crazy wacky idea, you talk to anyone and, and everyone's going to support you with uh, with uh, with generosity and 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 and, and resources. Very cool. 
Yeah. Uh, I remember in uh, 2006, 2007, I, uh, my, my buddy, uh, my roommate at the time, Alex Zink, who has a great Michelin star restaurant in D.C. called The Dabney. Uh, we were living together. He, uh, he brought home a 500 milliliter bottle of uh, dry orange wine called Ver, made of Ribola. And uh, when I met Abe Schoner about a year or two later... I said, I'm so happy to meet you. I love your Vare wine. <laughs> I knew it was inspired by Italy. I had no idea yeah. who George Vare was. Um, yeah. And so you'd, you'd met him. He's, uh, you'd met him. Yeah. How did that meeting go? Uh, when, it, it, what a visionary. What a, oh, he's, uh, he's a larger-than-life man. And, uh, you know, I mean, you know, John Consgard was his winemaker at Luna, and Abe wow. followed suit after that. And so, um, you know, George took everyone to Cal, uh, to the Northeast Italy to find the great Pinot Grigio of the world. And and so he, you know, he, and he met he met because Luna was a San, Sangiovese and uh, Pinot Grigio house, and uh, and so he had a vineyard in his backyard that was Pinot Grigio based, and and he fell in love with Ribola of all weird things, and he had that relationship with uh, with uh, uh, Serena Palazzolo as uh, Ranco de Niemitz, and. And so he was just every year going out to the source, just like all the great winemakers of the world always are being inspired by visiting other regions. But I his source was Friuli. His was source was ended up being Friuli. And Before Bobby Stuckey. Yeah. He must, did he, I wonder if he went with Bobby Stuckey. I'm try, I, I would love to know that lineage before Bobby opened up his great, yeah. I think, national, uh, one of the best restaurants in the nation, Frasca. Yeah, well, Bob, I, I, Bobby and Lachlan, they, that was 2004 when mm-hmm. they, they started Frasca. So, you know, George brought over Budwood in, in 2000, 99, wow. 2000. So Bobby was at French Laundry at the time and Lachlan was at French Laundry at the time. So it was there was this, there was that mutual uh, uh, connection there. And uh, no, no, George made the first uh, kind of Ribola blend in California at Luna called Freakout. And he got some actually Toca Frilano from Larkmeet, some age, uh, some, some old vines that are on the property. We don't have a, a specific date, but we know they were definitely pre-1950, wow. maybe even back into the 1890s. Um, and George got some Budwood from there. And, and I remember, you know, kicking dirt with him and Steve Mathias and, and saying, you know, all that, you know, a lot of it was bu- uh, diseased. And yeah, of course it is. Um, a lot of the old Budwood and all, uh, that we're going to get from uh, old vines in Napa Valley are going to have a, a, a thousand and one diseases, just like the Grobner Budwood that George brought back from Friuli, uh, Slovenia border that was uh, diseased. And yeah, it was, it was amazing. Um, Quite, quite a, quite a small niche speckle of dust in a in a bigger sea of wine, um, but uh, but really just a wonderful, wonderful period. Uh, and how in many my life. producers of Ribola are there now? The, in, in California, at, in two thousand nine, when George opened up the gates to the vineyard, uh, I believe there were seven to nine of us, mm-hmm. and uh, and he brought us all together after the harvest to to taste oh. our taste all of our wines together, and uh, that's a tradition that Steve and Jill Mathiasen have kept. Uh, going uh, since George's passed, and uh, so every year in July we have a Ribola fest, um, and it's funny. All my friends in Friuli will uh, <laughs> think that we that we care more about Ribola than they do. <laughs> I love it. I know everyone takes a, a different approach to Ribola, um, but is there something that is in common with everyone who's attracted to the grape? I think the versatility. What brings you two together? All, I, all of you guys together. I think I think the versatility, and I think you know, you we're all inspired by the singular vision of one person. We all follow a tribe, right? And George led that tribe, and um, and uh, but no, it's a, it's it's a, it's a, 
you know, it, Rebola as a grape variety has has three identifications. It, uh, you know, trying to be a fresh white wine, and it's very difficult to do in a very cold, rainy uh, region like Friuli. Um, the Slovenians believe that macerated on the skins is the true nobility of that grape. Uh, the Friulians will, will will argue that's not true. Um, and then, you know, they because they weren't able to ripen properly, um, and having all that kind of uh, that youthful underripe acidity um they started making sparkling wine out of it so you can see Rebola as a sparkling form you can see it in its macerated form as an orange wine and you can see it as you rarely see it as a as a fresh wine the way i treat it right it's very interesting um and now i know that you've been uh uh making a little bit of wine in friuli as well yeah gospery yes How did yeah that come about? Um, that was uh, an amazing experience. Um, I've been, since 2010, I've been visiting, uh, the region to kind of understand a little bit more about the, the grapes that I'm working with and just to kind of, you know, be, be part of, uh, be a part of an international community. Um, I don't, uh, I'm, you know, my, 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 my love is more towards Italian wine. So I spend most of my time traveling through Italy. Um, and and, and over the course of time, getting to know uh, uh, Serena Palazzolo and Christian Patat at, at, at Niemitz, um, we just, you know, two, three years into the relationship, we're having dinner at Thanksgiving, American Thanksgiving at La Subida, and uh, we're talking about all the great, you know, we're just we're drinking great wines. I remember exactly the wine we were drinking. It was a 2004 Sauvignon by Vida Romans, and, um, and, and they were like, we should make wine together. And it blew my wow. mind. I was like, what? what? <laughs> like, it was definitely, look, I'm, I'm saying this publicly for the first time. It was definitely something I wanted to do. Uh, I definitely wanted to, you know, kind of to, to, to make some wine in, in Europe and especially Italy. Um, and were, you, were you dropping not so subtle hints? No, 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 no. <laughs> I'm much more of a person that I need you to, to understand and respect and, and respect me over time. I'm not going to try to take advantage mm-hmm. of a situation or be that dumb you know, kind of, uh, you know, bull in the China shop American who's like, I want to come in and make some wine. Um, that's not who I am. Um, not saying that there are people like that in this world. I'm just saying, <laughs> I'm just saying like, I want them to trust me and I want them to understand that I, it means a lot to me what, what they have offered me. And that's a, it's an important part of, uh, of relationship building in the wine industry and uh, is gaining each other's trust as a, as a salesman, Joe, you know that you need to gain your, your diner's trust. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. Um, well, the wine is beautiful. Thank you. I really love it. Congratulations on that. I have one last question for you. I know that in the long history of Lark Mead, um, there had been many different grapes that have been planted there, uh, including some, uh, some uh, obscure Italian grapes. Uh, if there was any grape that had been planted at Lark Mead in its past that you could resurrect, what would it be? That is a really tough question because um, I am a staunch, it's a whole other podcast, I'm a staunch believer that red Italian grapes in America do not do well. Um, I just pissed off a few people. Um, (laughs) But, um, but, you know. But white grapes in America do well. Well, all of America. We have we have uh, that's another podcast about the, how how grape varieties uh, are transportable. Tune um, in next week. Tune in next week. No, okay. but uh, but no. Larkmead's had twenty eight different varieties over the course of its one hundred and twenty plus year history, um, and we only know that through the records keeping there. Um, up until nineteen ninety five, when the bakers replanted the property, it was uh, there was a uh, Chardonnay, Shannon Blanc, and Sauvignon Vert, i.e. Tokai Fialano. Um, and that was 60, it was almost 60% of the total property. Um, I, you know, in the th- 1939, Dr. Harold Omo planted 14 
Italian varieties, including uh, variations of Sangiovese, variations of Nebbiolo, uh, Pelaverga, Gringolino, um, everything, Barbera. Um, I Putting my business hat on, Napa is Cabernet country, and it deserves to be. Um, but I, 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 you know... It's not. I want to. I want to. I want to make great Cabernet first before we make something else. All right. Yeah. <laughs> so I'd encourage all of you guys to go drink some Napa Valley Cabernet, specifically Larkmead. Forget about this reverse snobbery and drink some really good Napa Cabernet. I I do it, uh, and I'd encourage you to as well. And uh, for sure, the the Masican wines are just so beautiful. Um, hopefully, the weather will get warmer and you can have some really fresh, crisp lively, mineral, delicious Masican wine on your table as well. Dan Petrosky, what a pleasure. Brooklyn native, guest on In the Drink. Awesome. <laughs> Great to have you here. <laughs> thank you so much. Thank you, Joe. My pleasure. Uh, I want to thank everyone at Heritage Radio Network. I missed you guys so much. Uh, Dave Tadashore putting the show together. You are the man. I really appreciate it. And thanks to all of you for listening. Come visit me at Fausto uh, or listen to another episode of In the Drink. Bye. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please... Join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.